0: Hello and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. This week we're discussing the economy of China during the period 1927-1938, to also known as the Nanjing decade, which we've been discussing for the past few episodes. And we'll be assessing how effective the nationalists were in encouraging growth in the Chinese economy. I actually want to start this episode off with an apology. For these past few weeks I haven't had a laptop because my hard drive crashed and I've had lots of problems with my apartment. So I'm sorry if any part of this episode seems a bit slapdash or not very well put together. I basically just didn't have enough time to go through everything as in-depth as I would usually like, but I still think we're going to cover all the important points, so let's get started. Today's question is a fairly simple one. Was the Nanjing economy a failure, and if so, whose fault was it? If you look at all the evidence, the answer actually seems pretty simple. The evidence is really stacked against the nationalist government to a ridiculous degree. But as with most China topics and almost every discussion about economics, it's a lot more complicated than it first seems. There are multiple factors to consider when it comes to assessing the nationalist economy, some of which were in their control, like taxation, spending and developmental policy, and some of which were decidedly not within their control, like bad weather and the Great Depression. For the purposes of this discussion, we're going to need to divide the Chinese economy into two, the rural economy and the urban economy. While the nationalists were more invested in developing China's urban and industrial centres, the majority of the population and the majority of the GDP lay in the countryside. They weren't completely cut off from each other, as this period also saw the development of the postal system, of all things, which facilitated other developments such as migration. Before we talk about either the countryside or the city, however, we're going to start with a bit of context and talk about some of the initial basic changes the nationalists made and how they handled the outbreak of the Great Depression. So it's important to note that when the nationalists took over the country in 1927, there were several different currencies floating about China. There were silver coins, copper coins, paper notes, Mexican dollars, and none of this was helped by the fact that the provincial authorities, Chinese banks and foreign banks all had the ability to mint their own coins and print their own banknotes. Immediately, the KMT moved to put a stop to all of this and take over the financial system completely. The central bank was established in 1928 in Shanghai, and by 1933 it had branches in major cities such as Nanjing, Tianjin and Hangzhou, sub-branches in smaller interior cities and representative offices in New York, Berlin, Geneva, Paris and London. The government then increased their shareholdings in private banks and regained tariff autonomy from the imperialist nations and thus they were able to increase government revenues by instituting tariffs on imported goods. So China was on a bit of a roll. They were even shielded from the initial impact of the Great Depression, as their currency was tied to the silver standard at the time, as opposed to the gold standard of most world economies. In fact, in the first few years of the Great Depression, China was actually able to turn a little bit of a profit from the crash due to the slight rise in inflation leading to growth in the economy. This changed in 1931, however, with the country slipping into a recession as its silver reserves started to flow out of the country, the price of exports increased and the prices of goods internally began to fall. The government tried to overcome the recession by introducing a currency reform in 1933, making the UN silver dollar the official national currency and abolishing all previously held national and foreign currencies through an exchange programme. It didn't quite go as planned, however, as the silver standard-backed currency continued to flounder as China struggled to keep up with the price for importing silver, and so in 1935, the government started issuing paper currency instead to replace the silver coins. The new currency was pegged to the US dollar instead of being pegged to silver or gold, with the US government agreeing to these terms so long as China agreed to sell them large quantities of silver for a fixed price. They signed the Sino-US silver treaty in 1936, which greatly helped to stabilise the global price of silver and helped to bring the depression to an end. So far so good, but I just want to add that it didn't necessarily go as smoothly as it seems on paper. The unified mint proved difficult to implement nationwide. For example, there were banks in more peripheral provinces like Yunnan, Guangdong and Shanxi that continued to issue their own paper currency. Nonetheless, by the early 1930s, the nationalists had made a stab at unifying the currency and established its role as the authority in the Chinese economy. So that's the context of economic development in this period. Now we're going to talk about the different sectors of the Chinese economy and how increasing government interference affected them, or didn't affect them at all. We're going to start by talking about the countryside because it made up a bigger chunk of the economy and therefore this section is way, way, way longer than all the others. So like I said earlier, the majority of China's population, around 400 million people, lived in the countryside under the general label of peasant farmer. Before I dive into exactly what the issues were with the peasant economy, it'd probably help to have a little context first, just so that we can understand how peasants actually lived and how the countryside was organised. It's probably not an exaggeration to say that the vast majority of these people lived in what in today's standards would be considered abject poverty. It helps to remember that at this time, the turn of the 20th century, there was no running water, no electricity, no indoor plumbing, no gas cookers, nothing really modern in the countryside. Most people lived in very basic wood or even mud house constructions, and saving up for a brick or cement house would have taken most families generations. Speaking of generations, it was very common to have three or four generations living under one roof, so grandparents, parents, the son, and then the sons, wives, and children. Daughters always married out of the home and went to live in her husband's ancestral home. So when it came to the specifics of how the countryside was organised and run, it varies quite a lot from place to place. I hesitate to overgeneralise because, well, in some cases that would mean literally giving wrong information. For example, just going back to the family size, some studies have shown that in North and East Central China, the average family size at the time was 5.7, whereas in Guangdong it was between 4.8 and 7.9, and in Yunnan it could range from 2 people to 32 people. But despite these ranges, I think we've got enough information to give some kind of basic groundwork here. So the main problem for the countryside at this time was land pressure. A lack of available arable land for a growing population meant that peasants were being forced to farm smaller and smaller plots of land for less and less yield. One of the root causes of China's land problem was the rural family structure itself. It was tradition that sons of a family would each inherit their own plot of land under the partable inheritance system. So it was taken from the family's main plot, and they would become very attached to it. As famed anthropologist Fei Xiaotong Tong points out, many peasants worked the same piece of land from early adulthood to death. It was the root of their lives, and even when other ventures proved more profitable, necessity is the only incentive, or at least the main one, for taking up any means of livelihood other than farming. The problem with this was that by the beginning of the 20th century, with no new areas being opened up across the country... Lots of land were becoming insanely small. Uh, the measurement for land in China is mu, which is about a quarter, in some places a fifth of an acre, depending on where you measure. So the average farm size in north and east central China was around five acres, or 30 mu. In Zhejiang, the average farmer cultivated less than 25 mu, or four acres. For comparison, the average farm size in the US at the same time was about 150 acres, or 900 mu. The plot sizes were so small as to not need animals, but it also meant that people didn't bother to really upgrade their methods of seed selection, cultivation, planting, growing, fertilisation, anything. The government did institute some research to try and improve farmers' productivity, such as looking into pesticides and taking up flood prevention methods, But these were largely ineffective or had very, very small impact ranges. And it doesn't seem like it was really even considered a major issue out of a few Chinese and Western anthropologists, sociologists, economists and scientists. Most of the Chinese experts who were interested in this sort of thing had been educated in the West and wanted to bring back some of the agricultural techniques that they'd learned about in order to improve China's yield but the lack of education and general backwardness and superstitious nature of China's peasants at the time meant that they were either met with resistance or just plain ignored. The majority of very highly educated Chinese had no interest in ameliorating the conditions of the countryside, and even those that had been born and raised in the countryside and were lucky enough to get the opportunity to leave and go to the city or even abroad to study didn't bother to really take that knowledge back home. This urban-rural disconnect was heavily played upon by the CCP, who were really the only people who showed a mass interest in the well-being of the peasant farmers, albeit arguably for their own gain. Another thing that the communists came down on very heavily was the landlord system in the countryside. The CCP characterises the landlord-tenancy arrangement as basically the big greedy landowner trampling on and mistreating his poor tenant farmers to the point of destitution and death. The truth was a little bit more complicated than that. Firstly, there wasn't really a class system in the countryside, not in the Marxist sense in any case. Landlord and tenants were basically parties in a business contract and not members of different classes based on privilege or subordination. There was no aristocracy and tenants weren't serfs tied to the land as they had been in Europe in centuries before – people were basically free and relationships between landlord and tenant were often good because they had to be. For one, tenants and landlords were usually from the same village and since cooperation and order between neighbours is the preferred state of living, landlords rarely, if ever, ejected late rent payers. The relationship was also mutually beneficial and so all parties suffered if one failed to cooperate and in some cases, for example in north and east central China, sometimes the tenant was actually better off than the landlord. Similarly, hired labourers, people who didn't own or rent any land and were usually from poor families, were usually very well treated, well fed and well paid by their host families, otherwise they might complain and Broadcast the fact that the family is stingy, which would make it difficult for them to get people to work on their farms in the future. In most situations, landlords also worked their own land. They weren't much richer than their peers, and most studies found that full landowners who did not work the land were rare and were usually like widows who didn't have any children. Rural land ownership is also kind of best seen as a cycle, so it wasn't like a permanent class of people who were always rich. Dr. Martin Yang, who wrote a book about this at the time, sums it up like this. Usually a family works hard and lives frugally until they can begin to buy land. Members of the second generation continue in the same pattern so that more land is added to the family holdings and it becomes well-to-do. Those of the third generation merely enjoy themselves, spending much but earning little. No new land is bought and gradually it becomes necessary to begin to sell. In the fourth generation, more land is sold until ultimately the family sinks into poverty. This cycle takes even less than 100 years to run its course. Something the CCP did get right though was the shift in this system from the 1920s and 1930s. The development of urban centres and the increasing economic and political influence of the town on the village led to the growth in the class of absentee landlords in the 1930s. This relationship was purely parasitic and relied on agents and middlemen for its function. Growing absentee landlord classes in Guangdong during the same period also meant that more militarists and capitalists were able to buy up land while living in urban centres, hiring strongmen to squeeze tenants for exorbitant rents. Across China, merchants and businessmen imposed increasingly punitive rents on peasants with no upper limits, sometimes taking up to 60 or even 70% of yields in payment. It doesn't take a genius to understand why peasant unrest increased steadily during the period, with or without the help of the communists. On top of all of this, the Great Depression had driven down the prices for non-agricultural produce, such as silk and traditional cloth-making practices. It did take a while for the effects of the Great Depression to trickle all the way down to the countryside, but when they did, it was a veritable disaster for peasant communities where a third or even half of their income was subsidised by at least one traditional handicraft. These handicrafts also provided labour for women, usually meaning that they didn't have to go out and toil in the fields all day, so with half of the family out of work, a household could be completely ruined. In times of desperation, some men would migrate to the town or city in order to find work, but again, because of the traditional structure of the countryside, this was usually heavily discouraged. A quote from an article published in Pacific Affairs in 1929 puts it like this It's proverbially known that these good sons of Han marry early, and that those without posterity mean failure in their filial piety. To have five generations living within the same walls and under the same roof is considered a great honour. Consequently, the surplus of boys are reluctant or restrained by their elders from going out to earn a living. They are compelled to stay at home and try to eke out a living in the best way possible from local resources. It's important to note that while the government did basically nothing to alleviate this situation in the countryside, not everything was actually within their control. There were probably about eight different factors that contributed to the mounting crisis in the countryside in the early 20th century the system of partible inheritance, population increase, outdated farming methods, poor methods of seed selection, lack of scientific understanding with regard to fertilizers, labor efficiency and hygiene, a broken credit system trapping peasants in poverty, natural disasters coupled with national chaos, global markets infringing on local peasant handicraft economies, and oppression and usury by corrupt absentee landlords. The impact of these factors also varied from time to time. For example, from 1934 to 1935, when the economic crisis was at its worst, the countryside was also hit with the worst droughts, floods, strong winds, and general natural calamity that it had seen in decades. As a result, output dipped 34% below its 1931 levels. Compare that with 1936 to 1937, prices increased and good weather meant that yields were the highest they'd been in 20 years. All of these different states of being, good and bad, were transient. This is something that most peasants accepted too. They always knew that they could only really rely on themselves. And this is reflected in certain local sayings they had. For example, heaven is high and the emperor is far away. Also, the nationalists didn't exactly have a strong foothold in the countryside at the time. As we pointed out in a previous episode, the reunification of the country had only just been completed in 1928, and then the nationalists had to fight the communists in Jiangxi, as well as chasing them through the west of the country, as well as fighting rebellious landlords in the Central Plains War in the 1930s. It was pretty much non-stop combat just to keep the party going, which explains why 40 to 50% of the national budget in this period was almost always invariably dedicated to military spending. The nationalists didn't have the time or power to deal with the multitude of problems that were built into the structure of the centuries-old rural economy. The urban economy, however, was much smaller, newer, and within their control. And so they spent much more time trying to control it, with varying results. So the Nanjing government's main aspiration during this period was to create a strong industrial base to spur on the modernization of China and support the armed forces. Their success was hit or miss. Looking at statistics alone, they actually achieved a pretty good growth rate. Industry across China, but excluding Japanese-occupied Manchuria, grew at 6.7% annually. Electrical output grew at an average of 9.4%, cotton cloth output by 16.5%, and bank deposits by 15.9%. However, those are just the stats. If we look at the actual numbers, we can see that the actual figures are pretty minuscule. And increases in production statistically amount to very little real increase materially. For example, in 1928, electrical output in China was 0.88 million megawatt hours, whereas in the US, it was 88 million. Any increases that did happen may have been a result of the government's increasingly direct involvement in the nation's economy. Throughout the Nanjing decade, the KMT became increasingly interventionist, setting up the China Development Finance Corporation in 1933, which was a private stock company that received Chinese and foreign investments to reinvest them in China's development. Most of those with controlling shares were government employees and officials, such as T.B. Sung, former finance minister for the KMT and brother-in-law to Chiang Kai-shek, and H.H. H. Kung, the richest man in China, and also brother-in-law to Chiang Kai-shek. The government was able to have a partial control over water, electricity and mining operations, as well as investing in other enterprises such as meatpacking, telephone, paper and spinning mills. By 1936, the government owned 12% of Chinese industry, almost all of which was a result of takeover, as most of their own attempts to build their own mines and factories usually ended in the planning stages. This sort of semi-government control is also evident in the growth of China's postal service. Though it was technically a national enterprise, it was basically autonomous, with the post offices springing up quickly across the country and jobs within the postal service becoming highly desirable. By the 1930s, there were 12,000 post offices in towns across the country and a postal agency in every village. They were considered extremely reliable and handled huge sums of money sent back from towns and cities by migrant workers to their rural families. The post office essentially acted as a banking system that linked the countryside and the city much more effectively than the government could. Unlike industry, which was localised in both reach and modernising effect, the post office encouraged new grassroots modernization across the countryside by introducing new notions to the Chinese population, including insurance and savings accounts. When it came to private enterprise, however, it was a bit of a different story. The government was heavily reliant on loans, and the nationalist heavy control of the banking system meant that the majority of the country's investment capital was put into government-run industries, while private industries and businesses had to pay up to 20% interest in order to receive a loan, which most were unable to pay. The government also ramped up taxes on industry as it became increasingly in need of funding, Introducing taxes on individual goods such as rolled tobacco and flour, as well as on businesses themselves. Many businesses also found themselves having to pay bribes or give gifts to government officials in order to stay in the central government's favour. The effects spoke for themselves. Two thirds of the 182 Chinese tobacco companies running in Shanghai in 1927 were closed by 1930. Despite these seemingly counterproductive measures, however, In general, industrial output actually increased at a pretty consistent rate throughout the Nanjing decade. But as it had been increasing before this period, since about 1912, it's probably the case that industry and commercial enterprise in China was thriving despite the government, as opposed to because of it. In general, the nationalist policies failed to produce real, substantive growth during the Nanjing decade. I think perhaps it might be because they were aiming at the wrong thing. The only reason I can find for them wanting to have greater output and more revenue was to support Chang's military. It wasn't like Chiang Kai-shek was an idiot, despite how much I personally dislike him. He was very competent when it came to political and military manoeuvrings, and he was clearly a capable leader in dire times. However, I think he was probably a bit too much of a visionary in that he was constantly looking ahead as opposed to looking at the situation as it stood. Because of that, probably many of the decisions that were made were based on future possibilities as opposed to present suitability. So was the lack of growth in China the nationalists' fault? It used to be fairly fashionable in academia to blame the nationalists for their own failure, to point out all their flaws and mistakes, and retrospectively say that they could have done this or that to better rejuvenate the Chinese economy. Now, I think there's probably a bit more of a balanced approach. Certain things were absolutely the nationalist failure. In the countryside, any plans such as the land law, which would have put an upper limit on the amount of rent peasants had to pay, remained unenforced throughout the entire period. Also, the total government spending on rural economic development in the mid-1930s never exceeded 4%. However, they did take some measures to try and improve the base conditions of the country in order to encourage growth, such as abandoning the lichen which was a prohibitive transit tax that stifled inter-regional trade, unifying the currency as well as weights and measures, improving the postal and telegraph networks, building airports and railways, and undertaking and promoting research and development. To me, the biggest factor by far was time. In a 10-year period where half of the government's attention was devoted to holding the country together by force, it would have been completely unreasonable to expect a fully flourishing first world developed economy. Okay, so the Nationalists didn't do a lot, but it's not like they were actively undoing centuries or even decades of progress. They were arguably the most progressive government in China until the Communists took over. I think that military might and legislative and political power are two very different things. The Nationalists were able to rule through force a lot of the time, but you can't really force large-scale economic development without having a strong foundation laid first. I think the same probably goes for social and cultural change, which will be the topic of the next episode, which will be airing on October 15th. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to check out the Sinobabble website when you can, as I've just set up a blog on there. The first post is all about other resources that you can use to keep yourself up to date with everything going on in modern day China. That's it for me for now. I hope you tune into the next episode.